Welcome um, to the second part of our uh, top five list project. Um, in this uh, recording, we actually discuss our top fives. So uh, this is our longest podcast ever, um, and we are including a list of of our picks. I'm also going to be including in the description sort of some timestamps. So if you want to skip ahead to uh, num- our number fives or our number twos or where whichever whichever number sort of uh, catches your fancy. Um, we hope you enjoy this again. Uh, we don't have a lot of time to go over, you know, the full depth of these, um, but uh, we do hope that this gives you a sense of what we value, what we treasure in literature, and 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 maybe recommends some some reading for you. So we hope you enjoy our top fives. All right, welcome. So this is our the second part of our top five extravaganza. Uh, here we're actually going to be discussing our top five lists. So uh, we will be going through those five in, in ascending order. Uh, so we're going to start with, uh, let, let's actually start by introducing ourselves again. Um, we are joined by uh, Dr. Sally Plowden. Hello. Uh, Mr. Timothy Sebring. Hello. Mr. James Hain. Hello. Uh, Ms. Madison Richardson. Hello. And Mr. Jack Sutton. Hello. So we're taking some time out of our summer to talk about books that we love. Um, so we're going to begin with uh, Mr. Sebring, your number five. Um, tell us a little bit about it, because it's uh, it's it's maybe not one. May, maybe we're past the the prejudice that people have uh, about certain genres or types or, or media. But uh, tell us about your number five. Well, my number five and my top five favorite novels is a graphic novel called Mr. Miracle by uh, and the author is named Tom King, and the illustrator is a guy named Mitch Gerard. And it's funny you say that you don't think there's much of a stigma against comic books anymore. I would probably not recommend this as somebody's first comic. It's very dense. It's very layered. It's very much using the medium to tell a very particular story. And it's very hard to explain because it's not just a very complex story in its own right. It's based in Jack Kirby's mythos of the new gods, which is its own thing. Uh, but long story short, the reason I love this book is it it has a lot to do with when I read it, read it initially, uh, back when it came out in 2018 or so. Uh, not a great time in my life, unemployed for about a year. But this book was something I look forward to every month. And again, I am having a really hard time explaining why I love this comic book, but it's very human written very humanistically for a comic book uh despite the fact that all the characters are still wearing costumes and capes and they're fighting on planets with names like apocalypse and new genesis it's very uh it's very relatable very human and some of the dialogue is just the best thing i've ever read and the art that accompanies it is fantastic if anybody has any interesting comics i would recommend anything by the author tom king uh, he is a fantastic author, and I think I just picked this one because it's his most celebrated work. But yeah, it's 
like you said, I think comic books are sort of entering this new period of acceptance, and I think it's cool that I get to talk about a weird offbeat graphic novel in this podcast. Absolutely. You know, and I, I think a lot of comics, you mentioned Jack Kirby's um, work. I think that's getting a lot of um, critical reevaluation and his, his sort of mythic storytelling and things like that. And I think, I think better writers, or I, I don't want to say better writers, writers are not being as embarrassed about writing comics. So Ta-Nehisi Coates and, and various others <clears throat> are writing weekly series. So no, that's a, that's a fantastic one. I think I, uh, oh, go ahead. going back to what you said, I think the best way I could describe this version of Mr. Miracle is that it uses a lot of Jack Kirby's mythic language to tell a very personal humanistic story. So mm -hmm. that's my pitch, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, sir. Um, moving to Mr. Hain, uh, tell us about your number five. Uh, I think you might be on mute, Mr. Hain. All right. I was trying to keep my dogs from stealing the show. Um, uh, my number five is The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. And um, I... It's one that I love, that I love to read and reread and teach and reteach. Um, and like all good books, it's one that I find something new in every time I read it. Um, I guess many people would call it the seminal work of American realism, um, which is not why I love it. I, I do love the, the, the uh, fun poked at, at uh, romantical thinking as, um, Huckleberry Finn would call it. Um, but I also love the way that it, I think Mark Twain uses humor to, to show us how complicit we are in the problems of our own engineering, the social problems. And in recent years, a part of this book that's become one of my favorites is the part where Huck Finn accidentally stumbles on the house of Tom's Aunt Sally and um, Aunt Sally's expecting a visit from Tom. So Huck just assumes Tom's identity. Um, and she asks, well, why, why are you arriving right now? What happened? Uh, we weren't expecting you now. And he said, well, I was coming down the river and there was a terrible accident. The, 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 the one of the whatever parts of the engine exploded um, and she says, oh, my God, that's terrible. Well, was anybody hurt? Um, and he says, no, um, uh, an N-word was killed, but no, everybody was everybody got off safe. And um, she says, well, that's good because sometimes people do get hurt. And I think Huck is in that moment, you know, he's traveling. He's he's been traveling down the river with Jim, who's an escaped slave and doing everything he can to help Jim escape but he's sort of an undercover agent. Uh, he wants to appear as a member of the establishment or mainstream white society. And Aunt Sally is a character we, I think the, we, we're invited to appreciate because she's so patient with these boys that would make anybody want to pull their hair out. And I think we're kind of uh, enticed into loving her and then this woman who might remind 
a reader of Twain's day of his own mother or her own aunt is deeply complicit in this, in this awful problem of racial inequality and yeah yeah i mean one thing that is it's so fascinating that you point at point to that moment um because it's so central i think to to huck's sort of awakening but it's also interesting that wasn't it hemingway said all american literature comes from mark twain's huckleberry Finn. yes yes and that's for good and ill you know that <laughs> that the central problem is is still a thing um yeah, yeah. Some of the funniest things I've ever read are in um, his his parody of the "to be or not to be" speech is just yes, it is. It's wonderful. Or well, it's hard to say which speech he's parodying, right? Because uh, there's right. so many mixed into one. And maybe there's it's no accident that I have a, a Hemingway and a Twain on my list, and that both the um, the, the characters in both books are struggling to figure out what everything means. Mm -hmm. um, well, I'm going to, uh, coming from the heights of like mythic um, uh, sort of space opera and wrestling with some of America's original sins, um, my number five is uh, a collection of essays by Chuck Klosterman called Eating the Dinosaur. This is a 2009 collection. Um, it, in some ways, it, I think he said that it kind of started out as sort of a contemplation of the 90s. Uh, Klosterman is, was a, uh, a film critic and a rock critic, music critic, and then just sort of became an everything, a cultural critic. And this book in particular, I think, is his best um, sort of, it has a lot of close analyses. One of them is a, a comparison of Kurt Cobain and David Koresh, um, looking at these two sort of one guy who wanted to only appeal to a small select group and ended up appealing to everybody and, and it destroyed him. And one guy really wanted to appeal to everybody and only appealed to a small select group, a cult you might say, and how that destroyed him. Uh, but that sort of meshing of high and this meshing of high and low culture there's a interesting uh examination of the unabomber's manifesto at the end of the book uh he has a great line where he says um when you start talking about the philosophical merits of ted kaczynski's work people treat it a lot like if you start talking about oj simpson's um skill as a running back at first they're confused and then they get mad at you um and that kind of gives you his his mindset there are two quotes that i really love from this one he has an essay on time travel and he says uh one of the minor tragedies of human memory is our inability to unwatch movies we'd love to see again for the first time and i thought about that in reading books that you know that first initial encounter with a book especially if it's that visceral contact it's, it is kind of a shame that we never quite get back there. The other one, he has an essay on um, football and why football works as a quintessentially American sport. And he says, uh, football allows the intellectual part of my brain to evolve, but it allows the emotional part to remain unchanged. It has a liberal cerebellum and a reactionary heart. And that is all I want from everything all the time, always.
Um, and I find that very funny whenever I'm watching a football game that my, you know, the child in me gets to root for the Bears, even though they're probably not going to win. And the brain part of me can be, you know, awed by the complexity of the plans and the evolution of the sport. So sort of gets to why I love that. I, I would say Klosterman's approach is very influential on my teaching and that I love bringing in pop culture sort of comparisons because that, I don't know, it just, uh, I think it works. But in any case, uh, Mr. Sutton, your number five. So my number five is, um, is the Count of Monte Cristo. Um, and I, I will admit, I have not read this in, in several years, uh, <laughs> but uh, this is this is one that has been a longtime favorite of mine. Um, I partially credit it for like what made me kind of fall in love with literature because it is a very much a baseline for all of the things that I love to see in in just like a good, enjoyable book. It's got adventure, it's got romance, it's got political intrigue, revenge, it's got everything. It's got, it's just the best because you can just, you can read it and enjoy it. And, and people get so intimidated by it. And it's like, no, 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 I promise. Like, it's like the fastest, it's the fastest big read you'll ever have because every chapter is like a cliffhanger and you just can't put it down because everything's so exciting. The pri like prison break like a basically a man of mystery i i, I just i i just kind of gush about it every time i talk about it because it's like it's just so fun it's sad it's got sad moments but like it's got it just it has so much and it's so hard to not just love it that's awesome and i uh i i have not read the count of monte cristo you have just convinced me i need to so thank well, you you know jack I love The Count of Monte Cristo too. I, I just love the epic journey, the journey you yourself take from finishing a 1400 page book. Um, but but I, I love books that have that have travel, there's like some ongoing mission. Um, and you'll hear later from me because my number one book has actually quite a bit in common with Count of Monte Cristo. So anyway, I love you put that on your list. Um, which leads nicely, Ms. Richardson, you want to tell us about your number five? Sure, I'd be happy to. So my fifth favorite book is Haroon and the Sea of Stories by Salman Rushdie, which is actually a, it's actually a children's book. Um, my number four and five are both children's books, but I think they have, you know, universal messages and themes. Um, now with this book, interestingly, I, I normally don't place that much value in like the author's life or their story leading up to writing the book. I, I don't care too much about authorial intent. Um, but for this particular book, I think actually the story of Salman Rushdie makes it that much more powerful. Um, the author, Salman Rushdie, wrote this book while he was in exile and hiding from governments um, that wanted him dead for a controversial book he had published. Um, so he was often apart from his family, including his young son, Zafar. So he wrote this children's book to his son, Zafar, and he dedicated the novel to him with this really touching acrostic poem, which I'll read. So it says, Zembla, Zenda, Xanadu, all our dream worlds may come true. Fairy lands are fearsome too. As I wander far from view, read 
and Bring Me Home to You. And that book, I think, is just the sweetest way to start the book. Um, and the book itself is about a father and son who are clearly modeled after the author and his son. Um, the father is a wonderful storyteller who has, as he says, the gift of gab. Um, but one day, his ability to tell stories and spin tales runs dry. And so his son, Haroon, is forced to reconcile his love of his father with his father's lost talent. Um, he goes on an epic journey, kind of like Conte Monte Cristo, but he encounters different magical characters that provide charm and humor. Um, like the storyteller in the book, Salman Rushdie, the author, also has a, has a way with words. And a large part of the charm of this book are is the clever use of wordplay, various references to famous fairy tales and other books. Um, and then a huge theme that I take away is what, what is the purpose of a story? Where do stories come from? Um, at the beginning of the book, Haroon's neighbor asks him, what's the use of stories that aren't even true? And I think that question is really a lens that we should use to, as we analyze any fiction, what is the value and importance of reading books that are fictional? Um, I, so, so this book is, uh, although it's a children's book, I think it's a really charming story and a great way to think about fiction in general. Absolutely. And as, as an English teacher, anyone who's willing to defend the uh, value of stories that are, quote, not true, um, I, I <laughs> heartedly support. Absolutely. Um, all right, Dr. Plowden, now your number five and my number three are yes. the same author. So why don't you give us a, a heads up into your number five choice? Okay, sure. Um, my number five choice is The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. And um, my backup there is Wide Sargasso Sea, just to get that out there on the table. But um, the Bluest Eye, I actually read Song of Solomon and then Beloved and then The Bluest Eye. The Bluest Eye is Morrison's first novel. And um, it's one of my favorite books. It, it, it's not as maybe, you know, polished and powerful as Beloved, which I, if, if this were a list of like all time greatest best books, <laughs> I would have Beloved on that list for sure. But I love The Bluest Eye, and for several reasons. I, I tend to, I have realized from thinking about why I chose the books I chose, that I tend to love books that are about um, characters trying to kind of find their place in the world and um, discovering kind of what the world is like and uh, who they are, what the world is like, how they fit into that world or do not fit into that world, um, which identity of course plays into that. So The Bluest Eye I think is about identity. It's also about beauty and particularly how beauty is defined by the culture in, in which we live and how when we have only one sort of cultural view of, of beauty, how destructive that is. And in this case, particularly to this young girl, Piccola, who believes that um, Piccola is a black girl and she believes that the only way to be beautiful is to have um, blue eyes and blonde hair. And um, so she kind of spends her life uh, trying to get the bluest eyes. And um, of course, 
that is not really possible. And she, the uh, cultural definition of beauty is really so destructive to Piccola. And although, it, so this is not a happy book. Uh, to quote, uh, I guess, the last chapter of um, Beloved, at, at some point Morrison or the narrator says this was not a story to pass on. Um, Bacola's story is a, is, is a very sad one and she descends into madness, really at the end of the book, marginalized from the community. But um, it's one of my favorites because I love what Morrison does. It, it's unbelievable to me that it's her first novel, but I love the way she brings in the, um, she quotes from the Dick, Jane and Sally store books. Those are the ones that I learned to read by. So it, you know, it really um, makes me think about, uh, you know, the, obviously the culture that I'm a part of and, um, or the, so she quotes from those and how to Piccola that is the perfect life and how she cannot possibly um, attain that perfect life because it's not really a life that includes people who look like Piccola. It's not a life that includes um, standards of beauty that include um, her. So um, I will have to say that I, at the ending is extremely powerful. At the end, I think we see the sort of the ending prefigures that final chapter of Beloved, which I think is to die for in its beauty and power and just um, the poignancy of it. So that that's another reason the final, uh, The Bluest Eye is one of my favorite books because in, in that sense, it sort of prefigures, I think, what is to come. At the same time, it's beautiful, sad, but beautifully done, I'll say by Morrison, all on its own. Yeah, um, I, I will say this. So we've done an episode on The Bluest Eye, mm -hmm. and it is by far the most popular episode that has been listened to <laughs> a lot of times, uh, many times. Um, and as Dr. Plowden said, that's that's surprising in some ways because it is such a brutal novel mm -hmm. in, its, in its depiction of tragedy. Um, I, uh, so my, uh, my number three is, uh, also by Toni Morrison and it is, um, Song of Solomon, which you mentioned. And I think I, perhaps I'm naive, but I, I, um, I really, uh, in, I thought, I think the bluest eyes is gorgeously written and, and powerful. I think Song of Solomon is her building on that and taking mm -hmm. it somewhere else. We get, we get another journey. We get a yeah. journey of self-discovery. We get, um, Milkman. Uh, the names, like, I think the names alone put this book in my pantheon. Um, but uh, Milkman, the son of Macon Dead, and uh, travels south from from Michigan down into uh, where his family is from in Georgia and discovers himself. There's, there are parts of this novel that are like little tossed off bits that um, in, in and of themselves, they could be their own novel and they would be masterworks. Um, the, the treatment of family, the, uh, the habit of Milkman's family to name their children after randomly picked words in the Bible. So, you know, first and uh, second Corinthians is his sister's name and, you know, his aunt's uh, named Pilate and uh, just little, little things like that that just lend so much uh, texture and richness to it. Um, the theme of flight that in some ways where, where Piccola is is forever trapped in her own body and one that she sees as unworthy, um, 
the Song of Solomon gives, you know, brings this myth of flight and flying back to Africa as yes. a as a beautiful image. And 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 the end, the 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 final bit, um, he says, uh, if surrendered, if surrendered to uh, sorry, if you surrendered to the air, you could ride it. And there's that sense of like not fighting necessarily all the you know impositions and the injustices, but surrendering to the circumstance, not not surrendering to the situation, but being bigger than it and, and overcoming it. And again, I know that that's very naive in a lot of ways, but um, her vision of that is 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 amazing. Yeah. Uh, it, she also has a great line about uh, what she's talking about a liberal arts school, which hits home to me, but says uh, Bryn Mawr had done what a four year dose of liberal education was designed to do, unfit her for 80% of the useful work of the world. And so there's this sort of bitter sarcasm in there. <laughs> but also obviously she appreciates and, and, and goes with that as well. So um, I, I think Morrison was a genius, one of the best American writers that that the 20th century saw and obviously was was noted and, and awarded the Nobel Prize for literature. Um, so I love Song of Solomon too. And um, I think it's a much, obviously much happier book than both Beloved and, and The Bluest Eye. So, and, and I love the flight imagery and, and all of that. Maybe that, you know, I'm the person who's reading comics and myths like that too. So maybe that's my, proclivity. Um, all right, Mr. Uh, Mr. Sebring, uh, we've come around to num your number four. First of all, I do want to say I'm starting to realize that you've kind of thrown me in front of the bus with this because <laughs> I had to go first, but the five of you have just so much more eloquent descriptions of why you loved your, your fifth favorite book. No. I just vomited some word salad into this podcast. So let no. me see if I can't do any better with number four. My favorite, fourth favorite book is The Killer Angels by Michael Shara. And as a former or practicing English teacher, this is going to get me a bit of flack, I think, but I do not believe in anything such as the great American novel. I believe that there are basically great American novels in different genres. And I will go out on a limb and say that The Killer Angel is the great American novel about war. Mm. And I think one of the reasons it is, is not just because it's a novel about America, about at war with itself during the Battle of Gettysburg, but part of it is because uh, I, also the way it changed history. It was written as a response to the burgeoning Lost Cause movement, and it really did help to demystify a lot of aspects of the Civil War. The idea of Lee as this unbeatable general, uh, it's, it literally saved the reputation of James Longstreet, who was considered to be a traitor to the Confederate cause when the book came out in the 70s. But I think what I love about it is, especially because from the perspective of the character of James Longstreet, Michael Shara is that rare author who lets his characters be wrong and lets you empathize with their being wrong. Mm. Which is why I think James Longstreet, the fictional version of him portrayed in the novel, not the real person who lived in New Orleans, uh, he's one of the great American characters because the entire story is about him realizing the futility of the Confederacy's fight from his perspective. That is, of course, paired with the more idealistic story of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. But um, 
I think that aspect of it is what has brought me back to that multiple times. The idea that it's this achingly beautiful portrait of a man who was in mourning at the time. His his children and his wife, or he had he had suffered a great tragedy recently. I think his 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 daughters, if not his wife and daughters, had passed of an illness just before the Battle of Gettysburg. And it's such a heartrending image of this man who has nothing to fight for, but still decides to keep on fighting, and for the long, the wrong cause. And I think that's, like I said, that characterization is what drew me to that book and what keeps me coming back every now and again. I love it also, Tim, The Killer Angels. It's, it's, it's a great book. And you, you highlight, you know, we've talked a lot about story arcs and discovery and themes. And I think, you know, you, you, you bring us back to a book with a character that sticks you with like that, with you like that is just so powerful. Um, and it, even if he, I like that you made the distinction between the fictional version of him and the historical version. You know, uh, Shakespeare was good at drawing that line too, and I think that's always a good, a good place to start. Um, all right, Mr. Hain, you're your number four. Well, my number four is "Go Down Moses" by William Faulkner, and I suppose it's the one that I have the least to say about because there's too much to say. Um, it's a collection of stories, related stories. Um, and they're all good. Uh, my very favorite, and I know that this won't surprise you, you already know, is the bear. And especially that, well, I don't know, I love so many things about the bear. I love the language. I love the, the description of the forest as a, as a jungle. Um, uh, the, the forest, when they enter the forest to go hunting, um, the trees close behind the wagon, like water. Um, when Ike McCaslin needs to skip school to go hunting and his, uh, parents aren't sure about that. I, th I believe it's his uncle who argues. Uh, in a, I think something like a two page sentence, why it doesn't make any difference whether he misses school or not. <laughs> and um, uh, I just think, I hope our students don't discover that until after we've taught them a book or two. But my very favorite part of that story is Ike's meeting with the bear, the bear who has come to represent um, a million things. Um, Time itself, the wilderness, uh, which is shrinking in Mississippi. There's a, a, a lot of talk in the book about how the, the forest is just shrinking, shrinking, shrinking uh, um, until there's almost nothing left as, as land is cleared. Uh, but the, the way that I can't see the bear and he senses that he can't see the bear until he leans his gun against a tree, takes off his his compass takes off the puts down his compass takes off his watch and you just feel that he's stepped out of the field of space and time into something um uh primeval and the the description of the footprints of the bear as he that he finally finally stumbles upon that are filling with water one by one in front of him uh, uh as he sees them 
Um, I remember one of my professors saying that was the closest thing to a perfect description of the of uh, of a, a physical incarnation of spirit that you can find in literature. It's a wonderful scene, um, and his his final encounter with the bear is is uh, a mystical, mythical uh, encounter. Um, I, I had the pleasure of hearing Mr. Hain read part of the bear to a bus full of students in Mississippi uh, as we were leaving Faulkner's home. So that was a that was a real treat um, and a mythical or a mystical experience on its own. I'm uh, glad someone thought that was a real treat. <laughs> I, I hope you're not the only one. <laughs> um, so my number uh, four is actually by the same author as. <laughs> Uh, Ms. Richardson's number two. So I'm going to save that and uh, uh, shunt over to Mr. Sutton, your number four. So my number four is Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood. Uh, I know she's definitely super famous for Handmaid's Tale and all that, but I, I really, really love Oryx and Crake. Um, it's a difficult one to talk about. It's a science fiction environmental kind of book it, it's it's super interesting it's also kind of hard to i it's beautifully done it's just really gross um it does a lot with making you think about like you know humans interactions on the environment humans interaction with corporations corporatized farming but also just the, the, the casual cruelty that human beings have. Um, and she writes, she writes teenage boys really, really well uh, for someone who themselves is not a, was never a teenage boy. Um, and I say that as a, to say that these are not teenage boys that people should like. They're, they're horrible, they're terrible, but it's that like attitude uh, about a lot of things that is, um, pretty well done. Um, it, it, it's just, it's just an, it's a very thought provoking book. Um, it wrapped in a really interesting world and setting. Um, it's, it's post apocalyptic. It's part of a trilogy and I haven't read the whole trilogy. Um, I've just read this one and it's stuck with me really, really well. It's really weird. And if you enjoy reading things about the environment and science fiction and if you're okay with some really gross stuff uh it's it's really good one would wonder if uh the gross stuff in teenage boys is a tad redundant like um, yeah yeah it's it's a tad redundant but there's some other stuff that's also like gross environment like gross corporate uh, environments gross human damage to the environment it's it it's it's great uh but you'll have to have a, a it, it's tough to get through sometimes <laughs> maybe not you know before dinner or something like that no that sounds yeah. that sounds awesome um all right so uh ms richardson uh we come to you again your number four so my number four is rather different than Jack's. Mine is not gross. It is a, a classic children's story, The Little Prince. Um, I do not speak French. I envy all of you who could read the original French, but I've just read a translation. Um, but I, th I think it's just wonderful. Um, it's, a, it's a charming children's book about a pilot who gets stranded in the desert and he encounters 
a somewhat mythical boy who's arrived on Earth from another planet. Um, both the pilot and the boy share a disdain for adult views of the world, um, and they have many seemingly simple conversations that I think kind of reveal hidden truths about the meaning of life. Um, I, I'm continuously moved by the contrast between the boy's relationships with two of his great loves. So he loves a vain rose and a wise fox. And through, so he, he departs from his rose because their love had spoiled and he meets the fox and the wise fox um, teaches him what, what it means to be in someone's life, what it means to love someone. And from what he learned from the fox, he, he realizes his duty to the rose and he, well, I, I won't give away too many things, but he realizes his, his duty to the rose. Um, and, I, and I think the fox is just full of a number of quotable moments. I'll just quote one. Um, so he says, when he, when he leaves from the boy, he says, it is only with the heart that one can see rightly what is essential is invisible to the eye. And so this book is just full of really simple but beautiful and profound statements like that. And I, it's a, it's a very quick read being, being a children's book, and I think it's just lovely. Um, is there, are there multiple translations or is there just one that you've, uh, or one that you'd suggest? You know, I'm not sure. I have the translation that my parents owned when I was a child. So I don't know who that, who that is. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, a student actually read this over the summer and talked to me about it. And it was the, the, the style of it just seems so or the setting of it seems so fantastical. It just seems like a wonderful, like a wonderful story. Um, thank you. So, Dr. Plowden. Okay. So I love it that the past two books that Madison has talked about have been children's books. I love children's books. So, um, but my four number four is The Great Gatsby. With it's tied with The Age of Innocence, but I'm going to talk about The Great Gatsby. So, um, way uh, if if there were any odds makers on this podcast, they just lost their shirts because Dr. Plowden putting The Great Gatsby at four. I know the biggest upset. This is the <laughs> subject of her dissertation. I'm out. I'm out of a hundred. Bucks, Dr. Platt. Come on. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I anyway. I I love The Great Gatsby, and I have shocked myself by putting it at number four on the list. But um, and it's really no surprise that I love The Great Gatsby. Um, I love um, themes of imagination, especially imagination versus reality. Um, I, Keats was Fitzgerald's favorite poet. Ode on a Grecian Urn is one of my favorite poems. <laughs> and that poem really sort of informs, I would say, some of the most important ideas in The Great Gatsby. Um, but it's also about identity and um, hope. Uh, Gatsby's extraordinary gift for hope is what, um, in Nick's mind, saves Gatsby and makes him uh, saves in a figurative sense, saves Gatsby and you know makes him better than all the rest. When Nick says, you know, 
um, they're, you know, they're a rotten crowd. Um, and um, says that Gatsby's better than the whole damn bunch. So it's that extraordinary gift for hope. And I, I do love that sense of hope that Gatsby carries with him. Um, I'll have to say that one thing that I especially love about the great Gatsby is, and I mentioned this in the first podcast, is that some of the sentences absolutely take my breath away. And I love a, a beautiful rhythmical sentence that is um, that contains oh, just the right um, imagery. And there are so many sentences in The Great Gatsby that I read aloud, or if anybody's around who will listen, I'll read the read aloud to them and just say, oh, you have to listen to this, listen to this. But um, so I love the lyricism of the language and just the incredible um, beauty of the imagery in the book. So what I love about that is that along with that lyricism or sort of underneath it, there is this really sharp criticism of what Fitzgerald sees going on around him. And it, it's kind of like maybe the first couple of times we read The Great Gatsby, we're so in awe, or at least I was so in awe of the writing itself. Um, and you're just like, my gosh, how does somebody write sentences and put together words like this? And then the more you read The Great Gatsby, the more you realize that underneath the loveliness of that iridescent prose is just this very sharp criticism of what Fitzgerald saw going on around him. And um, that he is calling into question, you know, I think the um, American dream, but whether that's still really viable in, in the 1920s. And remember, it's published 1925. Um, so he's really writing about the first half of, of the 1920s. And um, one of my favorite scenes in the novel is one that's not talked about very often, but it's when Tom Buchanan and a man and a woman stop at Gatsby's house. They're Tom and other East Eggers are for some reason out riding horseback on West Egg and they stop at Gatsby's and um, Gatsby really, um, he, he offers them something to drink. Um, they take, they accept that, but they're ready to move on because really that sort of divide between East and West Egg, that sort of social snobbery of East Egg um, basically condescends to West Egg. And so uh, the woman asked Gatsby to go to, to come to dinner with them. She seems to sincerely want him to come. And yet um, Nick, who picks up on social cues, realizes that she that the others really don't want Gatsby to come. And it's in this scene that we realize that Gatsby, for all of his wealth, is an outsider. At the end of this novel, the outsiders are dead. Uh, George Wilson, Myrtle Wilson, and Jay Gatsby. And um, in that scene, Gatsby says, well, I'll go. And um, he's going to go to dinner with them. He goes up to get his coat. He comes back down. They've left. He stands there alone because they've all left. And except for Nick, who remains Gatsby's friend. And it, it, it's just a scene that's often overlooked, but it's just so beautifully shows what I think Fitzgerald was really trying to say. And that was 
something has happened, something has gone wrong. And um, there is there is this hierarchy of class that um, should not be here. So I'm just going to say, I'll, I'll stop. I'll, I'll stop with gas because I could talk forever. But it is that sort of um, what we don't often pick up on at first, which is the absolute sheer beauty of the um, writing. And underneath that, there is just this, this really pointed criticism and questioning of what Fitzgerald saw happening around him. Um, I, you're, you're focusing on those two things, I think is very, very appropriate. I, I heard two stories that kind of hit on that. One is um, apparently Hunter S. Thompson, before he started writing his first novel, actually typed out The Great Gatsby on a typewriter because he wanted, he said he wanted the rhythm of perfect writing. <laughs> he wanted to know what that felt like, which, I, you know, whatever you think of Hunter S. Thompson, I think that says a lot about Fitzgerald's prose. Yes. <laughs> um, and the other thing was uh, an author saying that he reads The Great Gatsby every 10 years and every 10 years it matches where he is in his life and he sees something different. Wow. So when he first read it, he was, you know, the glitz and the glamour of the party. Yes. That, that, that the beauty of the descriptions mm -hmm. out. And then every year, every, every subsequent reading sort of revealed more of a cynicism or more yes. of a jaded, you know, yeah. view of, of what was going on. And I mean, it's a definition of, of, of a rereadable is that every time you go back, you find something new. So uh, a stellar, a stellar novel. Um, all right, Mr. Sebring, we are to numero tres, number three. All right. So my third and second choices are kind of uh, linked in some interesting ways. Number one, they're both post-apocalyptic fiction in a way. Two, Number Three Nation is my favorite book, or is the, I guess a way I could describe it is, it's my favorite piece of fiction as an optimist. <laughs> it's also the book I most want to teach someday, because it's by Terry Pratchett, who is my favorite author. And for those of you who don't know, Terry Pratchett was an English humorist. Uh, he's most famous for his very long-running series, Discworld, which I almost put an entry of on this. But uh, Discworld requires a lot of context because it started out as a parody of fantasy tropes before becoming a parody of basically everything. Um, but Nation is a self-contained story, and the best way I can describe it is it's a reverse Robinson Crusoe. It's the story of a young Polynesian boy and a, uh, a girl from English nobility who have to literally rebuild a nation, the, the nation, in a slightly altered history of the, 18, of the 1700s. And it's great because it's, like all of uh, Pratchett's work, it's absolutely hysterical in bits. Uh, we've talked a lot about prose. I can't think of any quotes off the top of my head, but Terry Pratchett just has a way with words that always bowls me over. And more importantly, the reason I would love to teach this is because it's a young adult novel. It's all about teaching kids to question structures, to question society. It's almost a militantly atheist book, but that would be going into the plot and discussing it. But I love some of the, uh, the phrases like, for lack of a, a appropriated version of it, near the end, somebody says, 
God gave us the ability to think so that we could realize he is not real. Oh. And I love that kind of turn of phrase. I love the humor and it's such a great story for young, for young men and women, I think, to read. Um, awesome. Did, do you want to hold off on your number two sort of to, to let the I'll, other- I'll get to my number two in due time. Okay, very good, very good. Um, Pratchett's work, did he? I'm, I know I'm gonna get this wrong and, and lose my nerd card. He co-wrote some things with Neil Gaiman, correct? And uh, I, I love- uh, uh, I, I, I think there was a slight hitch either on my side or your side on the internet, but he did write Good Omens with Neil Gaiman, yes. Yes, yes, and I love, I, I love his work in that. And, um, I love the idea of a reverse Robinson Crusoe, kind of a, a rebuilding a nation post, post-apocalypse. Fantastic. Um, all right, Mr. Hain, uh, your number three. My number three is The Sun Also Rises, um, which I have not, The Sun Needs to Rise Again. I haven't re-read this in many years, but it's still a favorite. Um, so I won't try to to give any kind of summary um, or or to say what I think it means, because I do think to some degree it's about the problems we run into when we try to figure out what things mean, especially if they don't mean what we want them to mean. Um, I love it uh, uh, partly because I feel a little drunk when I read it. Um, not well, not drunk. Everybody in it is drunk. <laughs> I don't normally like to to be at a party where everybody's drunk. Um, normally, uh, uh, not usually. I mean, you know, there's a there's a, <laughs> to play with the Ecclesiastes reference. You know, there's a there's a season for everything. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I. I, I remember I taught this when I was working in Bogota, Colombia, and I, I just remember this overwhelming urge to go sit in cafes, um, so, which I did. I mean, I think this book did it to me. I just thought I, there was a um, patisserie down the street from me uh, run by a, a Frenchman, and I wanted breakfast there every weekend, and I really wanted to order a Pernod which I couldn't do there. But um, uh, by the way, I went to Cafe Select when I was in Paris uh, because I, you know, the main character in this book would get in a taxi and say, Cafe Select. So I went to the Cafe Select and ordered the Croque Madame uh, and I got this awful thing on two drive between two pieces of white bread, just sort of an egg and cheese smashed between two pieces of white bread. Where in, the, in my cafe, in my patisserie, my French patisserie in Bogota, I used to get this uh, nice buttery brioche. And I realized, of course, the Cafe Select is, must be capitalizing on its Hemingway fame and they don't have to worry much about their food. But it was neat to go there anyway. Um, I, I think I love the way this book, I think it examines language, the, our problems communicating 
um, the degree to which language serves us um, as a tool for communicating meaning. Um, uh, it takes place in, the, in, the, in a world that suffered through war and people are questioning meaning. And I love a quotation. I've never heard anybody else talk about this, but it's, I think Jake is, I think he's drunk, of course, in his hotel room in, um, in Spain um, in San, uh, uh, at some point during the festival of San Fermin when they have the bullfights. And lying in his bed, he's trying to read, and he talks about his uh, uh, proclivity for reading drunk and how that works. But um, he says at some point, and this is a, a, a cut down a bit, but he says, enjoying living was learning to get your money's worth and knowing when you had it. You could get your money's worth. The world was a good place to buy in. It seemed like a fine philosophy. In five years, I thought it will seem just as silly as all the other philosophies I've had. Okay, I know that's a little depressing, but it goes on. And then he says, perhaps that wasn't true, though. Perhaps as you went along, you did learn something. I did not care what it was all about. All I wanted to know was how to live in it. Maybe if you found out how to live in it, you learned from that what it was all about. Um, so I think I've... I mentioned that one to Dr. Plowden, and I might have been reading it fast or sum summarizing it poorly. And um, I don't know. I, I, maybe you can comment on this, Dr. Plowden, but I, I thought that you thought it was kind of depressing. But that the second part, I think, is beautiful, <laughs> um, especially to be to be spoken by a, a drunk guy who's just come from a bullfight. Um, that maybe by just learning to survive in life, learning to live in life, uh, um, if, if every structure of meaning you've relied on has failed you, maybe what you need to do is construct your meaning from your own experience uh, or maybe living life is its meaning. So there's so much I love about this book um, and that's one of them, but I love to hear what Dr. Plowden no, I, I, I do think that there is a, a, a beauty in that. Um, I, I agree completely. Every time I read The Sun Also Rises, all I want to do is eat cheese, hard-boiled eggs, and drink red wine. Um, it, it just brings that out in you. But I'm I... with this selection is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it, it, this... Uh, the Sun Also Rises has hands down one of my all-time favorite final sentences. And maybe it is that final sentence which um, makes me believe that there's sort of a sad beauty to the passage that you read. And that is um, Jake and Brett are in the car together and um, she says, you know, something about we could have had such a, a good time together. And... Um, his last sentence of the novel is, yes, he said, isn't it pretty to think so? And, and, what, just, and in this book, what we, what we think things mean, and uh, uh, this is the puzzle, are things what we think they mean or are they what they mean? Um, 
I, I think there is a sad beauty in this book. And I think Hemingway often gives us an old man character like Count Greffy in um, uh, the 93-year-old the who's playing pool while the army invades in uh, A Farewell to Arms or Count Mepipopoulos in The Sun Also Rises. I don't know what other people, I don't know what we're supposed to think of Count Mepipopoulos, but I think he's really cool. Um, pulls up his shirt and shows his battle scars at the party uh, on request. Um, but uh, at, there's a point where Brett says, I think just trying to be her cool, uncaring self, you're all dead inside and Count Mephipopoulos, who's been through war and is, I think, overjoyed to still be alive, says, no, my dear, you are mistaken. I am very much alive. And so there's that for us, too. Um, he, he's, he's been through the war. I don't think he's able to tell us what everything means, but he's going to live life. Um. Obviously, the you, you guys are much more well qualified to talk about Hemingway, um, but uh, I that that final line and, and some of those quotes in there, it, it's hard to argue there's been a, a more influential prose stylist in, in American literature. Um, um, so my number three is actually has the same author as uh, Ms. Richardson's uh, number two. So I'm going to hold off on that and we're going to uh, again go ahead to Mr. Sutton. All right, so I know my number three is the uh, is the same as Dr. Plowden's number three, um, and so please feel free to hop in. But to announce what it is, it's it's Moby Dick by Herman Melville, the book. Speaking now with my high school English teacher, was my least favorite book in high school, and has slowly, slowly, not even slowly, actually, we read it for this year for for class. And immediately, I was like, "This is this is one of the greatest books I've ever read. This is awesome." Um, there's so many things to say about Moby Dick, and it's it's been it's been done to death in a million ways. And every criticism of it, I'm like, "Yeah, you're right." And everything that people say about it, I'm like, "Yep, that's also right. That's great." Um, and it's just so beautiful, and its complexity, and its and its weirdness, and it. I, I know I've said it's it's just everything at the same time. Like I said so many times this year, one of the things that stood out to me is that it's like I, I've been calling it the most punk rock book of the 1850s. Um, it's so aggressive and in your face with some of the 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 different parts of it. Not only is it it's philosophy, but it's jokes. It's a really funny book, and it it's just so experimental and Melville does so many things and in beautiful language too. Sometimes I, I swear, sometimes he does things just to, to like, people are like, Oh, this book's so boring. I swear he does it on purpose sometimes just to make it the butt of a joke. There's an entire chapter called, um, cetology, cetology. It's, it's him making a fake taxonomy. This is, this is where my joke, my nerdiness is like a librarian kind of comes in where it's a whole taxonomy that he just makes up. And he's like, oh, this is, this is how we're going to organize whales from now on. And he makes you go through this whole drab thing. And then he ends the whole thing with just saying, um, he, he's just like, 
I was stated uh, from the outset that this system uh, would not be here and at once perfected. And then he eventually talks about he's like grand true ones, true things ever leave the uh, copestone to posterity. God keep me from completing anything. And it's like he does this whole chapter just to kind of tell you up yours like I'm not going to finish it. And but it's at the same time, it's this beautiful statement on like ambition because it's it's like it's like true things can't be completed but you should still do it anyway he calls the whole book just a draft and it's like how can you not like that that's so interesting and he just keeps doing stuff like that and he's i don't know i could gush about moby dick but i'll let dr plowden do it um at least at least some take over for me You muted. You muted. Dr. Plowden, you need to unmute. Thank you so much, I'm sorry. <laughs> I love everything you said, Jack, and I'm very happy that upon revisiting the novel, you have found that it is, is one of your favorites. But um, I, just to build on a couple of ideas that um, Jack has, has put out there, um, I love the experimental nature of the novel, the writing style. Um, we're going along, you know, we begin the book from Ishmael's first person point of view. And then at some point, it seems that we have just completely veered away from that. And Melville writes some chapters as if they are scenes in plays. I mean, we have stage directions and everything. So, I love that experimental nature also that Jack referred to. I think um, one of my favorite I things um, or traits of Moby Dick is I absolutely love the fierce wildness of this novel. Um, how Melville got away with writing, publishing this novel in 1851, I, I, I don't know, because um, when we read Moby Dick, we see really how iconoclastic that, that novel is. And you can approach it from a historical, political point of view. Um, I tend to approach it more from the idea of a spiritual journey. And um, part of the sort of wildness of that spiritual journey is really the landlessness of the novel. I mean, the first chapters do take place on land, on shore, but obviously the great bulk of the novel is on the ocean. And that landlessness, that movement away from the shore just really becomes this sort of philosophical and spiritual landlessness in the sense that Melville at, at some point, I think it's in the Lee Shores that the, you know, in the Lee Shore chapter is that um, some of the highest truths um, reside in landlessness. And um, so, but, but we see him raising a lot of questions. Um, he, I think it's Nathaniel Philbrick who says that Ahab will drag us all down into the howling depths of the psyche, which Ahab absolutely does. And we see this once great captain just so angry and bitter with the universe and with God, if he even believes that God exists. Um, and, and we have um, Ishmael, you know, on this sort of spiritual 
quest for the ungraspable phantom of life and the meaning of life and, and the question of if God exists. Because the thing that most terrifies Ishmael is the whiteness of the whale, which he equates to the blankness um, of atheism. And so what if he is on this journey and he has all these big life questions and what he discovers at the end of it is that there really are no answers to his questions. and. Um, so I, I love that sort of, I just call it a wildness of the book. It, it, it's Melville really stepping away from the New England shore uh, metaphorically and just delving into a, a lot of questions that I believe Melville had. Hawthorne said Melville could never completely believe, but he could never be comforted in, in his disbelief either. And um, I, I think I said earlier that I love books that do explore kind of what is this world? You know, what's my place in this world? Who am I? Um, how can I make this world better? And, and it's very much like that for Ishmael, who I think I said in the first podcast, basically comes to identify himself as an orphan of, of the world. The last uh, word of the book in the epilogue is orphan. And so we go from orphan to the first sentence of the novel, which is call me Ishmael. And um, it seems in that sort of circularity that Ishmael now defines himself as an orphan and as an outcast. And um, But everything that that, all the questions that that raises, uh, Melville's um, I, I claim that Melville makes Queequeg a, a sort of reformed cannibal, a savior figure in this book. And um, I just love the wildness of it. I, I love the fierce questioning that Melville does. And um, I, I just, uh, it's a book of big ideas and big questions. Um, it's, it's hard to follow Moby Dick, however, I think Miss Richardson's number three has the title to grab that. So, Ms. Oh, yes, <laughs> three. Yes. So, moving away from children's novels, um, my number three is called *Descent into Hell*. Um, and I always have to warn people: don't you know? Don't be so taken aback by the title because it features both an ascent and a descent. Um, so, this is a novel by Charles Williams. Charles Williams was a close friend of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, they formed a group called the Oxford Inklings. They were read stuff together and they wrote together and inspired one another. Um, and Charles Williams, author of this book, he's often considered the odd inkling. And this book is certainly the oddest one on my list. It is, um, I think, the only scary book that I enjoy because it is quite spooky at times. And it, it features an ongoing mystery about a, about several ghosts, actually. So, so it is a little frightening. Um, but but it's, it's centered around a, a seemingly innocuous small-town play. Um, despite that seemingly um, plain premise, it nonetheless subverts time and place to illustrate various um, spiritual and metaphysical ascents and descents. Um, there's, there's kind of two main characters, one who... When you read her story, you get tremendous optimism about the way to live in community with others um, as you see her ascent. Um, and on the other hand, there's the, the antagonist of the novel. Um, he provides a warning about how when you close yourself off from others, 
um, life does become a, a veritable hell. Um, I, I, I so love, so Charles Williams brings in a lot of philosophical elements and discussions into his novels, but nonetheless can write some really um, simple but beautiful prose. So I'm gonna read a passage about the antagonist who is watching some of the community members. So he writes, the moon was bright. He stood at the edge of his own skull's platform. Desire to hate and desire not to hate struggled in him. In the moonlight, visible, audible, arm in arm, talking and laughing, they came. He saw them pass, his eyes grew blind. Presently he, termed, he turned and went home. That night when at last he slept, he dreamed more clearly than ever before of his steady descent of the moonbright rope. So despite its name and despite a rather ominous central plot line with our antagonist, this novel makes me optimistic about the salvific potential of human connection. And it just always leaves me with the prayer, may our hearts grow ever larger. Absolutely. So it's good to it's good to see that that ended in a better place than the title. In some way, it's sort of the inverse of Moby Dick, a sort of nondescript title that ends in absolute existential despair. <laughs> uh, but that's fantastic. That's fantastic. All right. Um, so we're on our, our top two. So uh, Mr. Sebring, you get to drop the hammer on number two. So to wrap up that implicative the implied cycle that i started with number three my number two favorite is a canticle for Leibowitz by walter m miller jr and the i said that nation is the optimist in me's favorite novel a canticle for Leibowitz is the cynic in me's favorite novel because it's also post-apocalyptic but uh I think what sets it apart from its peers, like if you had asked me this question before the year 2015 when I read this, I would have probably said Earth Abides by George Stewart because I have a thing for 1960s and 1970s post-apocalyptic sci-fi. But what I love about A Canticle for Leibowitz in the broad strokes is that it's a post-apocalyptic sci-fi future where the world survives and humanity develops so much as to cause another post-apocalypse by the end. And in a way, it's very cynical. It's this idea that we will never change. History is going to repeat itself and uh, recurrence is inevitable. But there's also a... It's actually funny because this book really is the outlier in my collection. It's the only book that doesn't have really memorable characters. It's much more thematic, but the, the prose is beautiful. The ending really stuck with me because the ending does sort of imply that the cycle continues, but there is hope. There's hope, maybe not for humanity, but for something better than us. But it's a fascinating story. It's about how we, are, how we remember, how things will remember uh, us. And very much like Mr. Miracle, I'm having a hard time explaining why I love this book, but the feeling it set in me, the ideas it sparked have stayed with me. And it's another one of those books where I would love to teach this in a classroom just to see how students react to it. Yeah, I mean, we've we've seen a few books now, not not just your choices, but a few, maybe not if they're directly post-apocalyptic. Post I mean, we could say Hemingway also has that sense of 
you know, a loss of meaning and a loss of that, that self. So that's, that, that's very, very interesting. Um, Mr. Hain, your number two. Well, here we are. Well, mine is the story of the ingenious gentleman, Don Quixote of La Mancha. Um, I've, I had never read Don Quixote until I lived in Colombia, in South America. And while I was there, I had to have a, a hernia surgery. Um, and I would, I would advise you not to read Don Quixote right after hernia surgery, um, because you shouldn't, you shouldn't laugh very hard when you're recovering from that. It's, it's very painful. And I think no matter how hard you, you, you try not to laugh, it's just uh, unavoidable um, when you're reading this book. Um, I'm, su I'm surprised that so many, uh, I don't have many friends who've read Don Quixote. Um, it, every, I think almost everybody I met in Colombia knew the stories in Don Quixote. Most had read Don Quixote. I, I love this book because it's such a mix of wisdom and foolishness. Um, it's the, the, it was Mark Twain's, I, won't, I don't know if it was his inspiration for the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, but I think, think he certainly patterned the companionship of Huck and, and Jim on the companionship of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. Um, uh, not directly, indirectly, I'd say. Um, I love, <laughs> it's, it's, it's about a thousand pages and it's just, it never stops. The humor never stops. Um, and, and there's, there's philosophy and wisdom in it too. Um, I, I think I have a favorite quotation from Don Quixote. I mean, I guess that depends on the day of the week, but there in book two of Don Quixote, um, Don Quixote is, is, is trying to make some philosophical point to Sancho Panza. Don Quixote is a gentleman, uh, supposedly he not, well, he's a gentleman in his own mind, um, who's, who's just filled his head with, uh, romances. Um, he's read many French romances, especially, and he believes that, uh, that, that his, his job in life is to, um, consider himself a knight errant and to go out and save damsels in distress, right wrongs, um, all in the name of his, his imaginary lady, Dulcinea del Toboso. Um, I, I, I don't know how you translate Dulcinea, but it's, it's sort of maybe, um, Dulce is sweet. So maybe it would be sort of like sweetie. <laughs> um, Anyway, he imagines that the people he meets along the road are either heroes or villains. And um, he just, he, he lives a, a very active life of the mind. Um, and while he's obviously uh, demented, you, you don't want him to get better because he's just great the way he is. Um, uh, Sancho's always trying to talk sense in him or, ha or, or into him, trying to believe in him, but thinking he's, he's wacky. Um, well, Don Quixote one day is trying to talk uh, some sort of philosophy to Sancho and, and, and he asked, asked Sancho that, doesn't Sancho notice that in a drama, 
Um, there are actors who play the scoundrel. There's an actor who plays the knight, who plays the king, who plays the lady. And despite their different roles and stations in, in the play, once the play is over, they're all equal. They're just all actors. Uh, and this is what follows. Yes, I've seen that, responded Sancho. Well, the same thing happens in the drama and the business of this world, where some play emperors, others pontiffs. In short, all the figures that can be presented in a play but at the end, which is when life is over, death removes all the clothing that differentiated them and all are equal in the grave. That's a fine comparison, said Sancho, though not so new that I haven't heard it many times before, like the one about chess. As long as the game lasts, each piece has its particular rank and position. But when the game's over, they're mixed and jumbled and thrown together in a bag just the way life is tossed into the grave. Every day, Sancho said, Don Quixote, you are becoming less simple and more intelligent. And Sancho responds, yes, some of your grace's intelligence has to stick to me, responded Sancho, for lands that are barren and dry on their own can produce good fruits if you spread manure on them and till them. I mean to say that your grace's conversation has been the manure that has fallen on the barren soil of my dry wits. The time I've served you and talked to you has been the tilling and so I hope to produce fruits that are a blessing and do not go to seed or stray from the paths of good cultivation that your grace has made in my parched understanding. Um, I just think it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> well, as, as teachers, what can we hope for more than that? To spread some manure on the, on the hopefully it's, fertile minds of our students. It's our job as teachers to fill our students' heads with manure so that <laughs> the seeds of understanding have planted there that's uh, right. can, be, can sprout once tilled. That's right. Absolutely. Well said. Um, so I want to make a quick correction. Um, I misspoke last time. My number uh, three was Song of Solomon, which we already talked about. Um, and my number four, I'll save until Ms. Richardson's number two. Um, my number two is... I, we're on. We're on. We're on to the bricks. We got Moby Dick. We've gotten Don Quixote. Um, I'm going to add David Foster Wallace's uh, thousand-page novel, Infinite Jest, uh, as my number two. This was more started off almost as a challenge, more than an actual book. Like, can you finish this? There's about 300 pages of footnotes in it. Um, it is set in a not so distant future, in which uh, it's not quite post-apocalyptic. The United States um, has now does not go by a Gregorian calendar. Instead, they go by subsidized time. So most of the action of the novel takes place in the year of the depend adult undergarment, <laughs> our, our newer theme. Um, so various years are the year of the Whopper, the year of the Purdue Wonder Chicken, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's primarily set uh, in Boston uh, on the campus of a hardcore tennis academy that also bills itself as a site of higher learning whose curriculum is based on the uh, trivium quadrivium classical model uh, so we have this sort of regimented physical activity and down the hill from these very privileged athletically and intellectually gifted students um, is the halfway house a drug rehabilitation uh, center and we sort of see this um, it's, it's essentially a book about addiction of various sorts, uh, many of them chemical. If you are a pharmacist or would like to become a pharmacist, you could do worse than read the footnotes in here and, and see all the different pharmaceutical products that are used. Um, 
there's also, of course, the addiction to achievement, which the students are at sort of uh, de uh, dealing with and coming to grips with. And then there's ultimately a, a, an addiction to entertainment. And so the the title comes from a mythical movie called Infinite Jest that once you see it, it literally traps your brain and you can't not want to see it more and more and more. And it basically empties you out. And so it's a meditation on American culture, on consumer culture, on you are what you, you know, that, that old cliche, you are what you give yourself over to. Um, you know, the idea of an addict or a fanatic as the worshiper at the temple. Um, and to not choose something is to make a choice, you know, cue the rush song. Um, but it's, 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 it, points funny, at points sad. Um, it has some great, some of my favorite lines. Um, everybody is identical in their secret unspoken belief that way deep down, they are different from everyone else. And I think that speaks to me and that's sort of a, a sad, the, the delusions that we have. And then my other favorite one is, um, you'll become way less concerned with what other people think of you when you realize how seldom they actually do. Um, and I think that's that's been a very freeing uh, thing. Uh, I don't want to get into the the author himself. There, there's a lot of tragedy and sadness there on a lot of different levels. But um, as a book, I've read it a few times now, and every time I, I pick out certain passages that make me laugh, connections I didn't get before, it it really builds a world um, that is coherent and cohesive. I I made the mistake of trying to teach this to a uh, 200 level class at the University of South Carolina one time. And uh, there wasn't quite a mutiny, um, but uh, it they they did, I there were little things like I, I, I'm technologically pretty averse and there's a long riff, it's a throwaway gag about this thing called telephony. Uh, no, I'm sorry, video phony, where it's basically a video telephone and the students inform me that it's called FaceTime. It exists. And he, he foretold it about, you know, 15 years before. Um, but, uh, the, the sort of mental gymnastics that we go through, are we staring at ourselves or at the person that we're talking to? And that sort of narcissism, um, that, that we see even more. I mean, he, he wrote this, I think this was published in 19, 1996 prior to the advent of most, if any, social media. So it, it's become even more prescient and unfortunately more uh, um, accurate in its depiction of what we as human beings tend to fall into. And yet there, there's a great character named Don Gately who is overcoming his addiction and overcoming sort of his, um, his upbringing. So I, I still do um, love this book and, and come back to it frequently. All right, Mr. Uh, Sutton, you're up for number two. All right. So this is also the newest addition to my list since I actually only read it for the first time this year. Um, and if Moby Dick is the most punk rock book of the 1850s, this is just the most punk rock book ever that I've ever read. Um, this is probably not a flattering um way to talk about the book but this feels like a reading this book to me feels like getting into like a bar fight um it is it is not a pretty read uh like linguistically i think it's very ugly i think it's very intentionally the book is in your face the whole time and it is like a non-stop onslaught of just it, it just is like you are just 
going through the grime of it. And it's great. <laughs> um, it's uh, it, it has a great opening line that I do think is maybe the maybe the only pretty line of the whole book. And then from there on out, it's just you deal. I, I there's a trope in literature that I don't like. I really don't like unreliable narrators. And this is a book with an unreliable narrator. That's my number two book. And like Infinite Jest, it has a lot to do with chemical addictions and stuff like that. And you know, bodies and technology. Um, and just the, the very bleak outlook on uh, corporatization of the world and the globe and how it how it's brought so many things together, but has also just like dragged people into these horrible states um, where everybody, at the beginning of the novel, it's a totally throwaway thing where they're living in a place that's literally called Night City because it's why would it be anything else? It's just a horrible, toxic wasteland. Um, and it's not post-apocalyptic, but it feels that way the whole time. It feels just... It, it, there's something about... It's very much a book about like the way it feels. Also, it's another interesting thing where I don't think I've ever seen like genres take a long time to build up and everything like that. And this is a subgenre. But this is like, with the snap of a finger, cyberpunk as a genre is born. It is like everything about it stems right here. And that's for good and for ill. But like, I, I think that, that, that a lot, like, if, if, if you think about cyberpunk as a genre ever, you're really kind of thinking about Neuromancer and what it had to say first. Um, and it just, it's, it's a really wild trip. It's a it's a great read because you kind of go along with it. But like I said before, I would not call it a pleasant read in the sense that it's not you're not dealing with beautiful language or anything like that. But it is a, it's still a different experience nonetheless. Where I I feel like I should be charging this book with battery. Um, <laughs> And yeah, that's, I know that's weird to say about my number two, but maybe that says something about my weird tastes and uh, maybe it's a lot of anti-establishment in there. So I think that's pretty, pretty fun to read. Neuromancer is fantastic. I, I totally get what you're saying. It is not pretty, but man, it is bracing. I mean, you are just dropped in and, and you mentioned the genre arrives fully formed. I mean, sorry, the Wachowskis owe him money. Like anybody who's ever done any cyberpunk, I mean, they they owe him quite Mr. Gibson quite a bit of money. Um, the other thing that 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 you made me think of was, uh, I mean, the the novel has a lot of technological interventions in human psyches and a lot of chemicals, and the book is that. Like I I remember I was it was a break between my undergrad and beginning my graduate studies, and I picked it up and I was like, what is this? And it. I have never used illegal narcotics that I'm aware of. I'm assuming it's something like this, that, 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 that the experience is that kind of euphoric and then you, you just need a break because it's like, good Lord. Yeah, hard, harsh crash where you're just like, and, and also just the, the moment. This is, I, this is like when I can excuse the unreliable narrator, unreliable narrator because like he's just as in the, as in the like, I have no idea what's happening as you are. And you're just like, okay, we, we're both like, what 
what is going on. It's great. Absolutely. A, a, a worthy addition. Very good. Um, all right. So um, my number four and Ms. Richardson's number two share the same author, C.S. Lewis. So I'm going to let uh, Ms. Richardson uh, talk about her number two book. Awesome. Um, yeah, so I think C.S. Lewis, what we both will have in common is what a wonderful and clear writer that he is. Um, but my my second favorite book is C.S. Lewis's final novel, which is Till We Have Faces. Um, Till We Have Faces is a retelling of the, the classic myth of Cupid and Psyche. Um, and allegedly, Lewis had been haunted by this myth since his boyhood, and he, he just didn't understand. So in, in the classic myth, um, Psyche... Mary, Psyche is a human woman who marries the god Cupid, and she has two sisters who visit her and are very envious of the finery that she has. Um, and so they convince her to trick the trick the god who she's married, um, and it results in Psyche getting banished because of her sister's jealousy. Um, and in this retelling, the crucial difference is that the sisters are actually unable to see the finery. It is non-visible to them. And so they're genuinely concerned about their sister's well-being and think she has gone crazy. Um, I think we've all had a book that's been difficult to talk about because there's almost so much. And that this is that book for me. Um, there's so many themes um, that, that I, I've thought a lot about and that recur anytime when I, when I read a new book, I'm always like, oh yeah, Lewis did that until we have faces. Um, I'll just pick out kind of one interesting feature. Um, it's this idea of what does your, what does your appearance, what does having a face mean? What does it mean to have, what does self mean? Um, in the book, the main character, she, there's a few different stages in her life and in some of these stages she's wearing a veil that covers most of her face and in some phases she's not um, and her personality and actions are completely different in those different moments um, and that always struck me because I, I come from a religion where women actually do often wear a headscarf so I've thought a lot about what does that what does that do having some sort of covering and then that gained even new meaning this year when we were all wearing face masks what does it mean to get to know people when you can only see their eyes um how, how do we relate to one another how do we um tell other people who we are so, so anyway I, I, and i think that's what such great books can do right there's um universal themes but when we read them at when we reread these books at different points in our lives we get kind of a new and interesting take on on what we'd previously thought. Absolutely. Um, Lewis, Lewis had many gifts, but I think that was one of them, taking these things that seem very simple and straightforward um, and, and shifting our focus and making them fresh and, and letting us see them again. Um, my number four uh, was, uh, is the Screwtape Letters, his uh, series of letters from a uh, sort of executive tempter devil to his nephew, Wormwood. Um, and uh, it, it takes the sort of hackneyed cliche, oh, the devil on your shoulder trying to tempt you. But it, it makes, I mean, it was written in 1942, midst of World War II, and it sort of took this real life apocalyptic setting, you know, the end to many is, you know, why, why are we holding on to this? What, this is not gonna last, you know, in the middle of the blitz. Um, and sort of 
refocused a lot of people on saying, look, that's, you know, courage. Courage is, is something that matters in the midst of it. But he never does it directly because it's always sort of this inverted mirror version. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the there, there are a couple of great quotes where he, he talks about, you know, don't don't feel like you have to get someone into the big sin. You know, a little one will do, you know, uh, if, if cards or, or, you know, excessive gambling will ruin someone, let that be it instead of murder, you know, murder is so messy. And, and, and it, it's just so weird to see the perspective of, of evil be, I mean, the Hannah Arendt thing, the banality of evil. And I think that Lewis was already there, um, if not directly philosophically, at least fictionally in that, in that mode. Um, yeah, so Lewis's perspective is is fascinating because it, he does hold up certain virtues and and he asks these questions about identity, about self, as you say, about how to know yourself and others, um, about what love is. Um, and I, I, that's the other sort of um, really convicting in many ways thing about the screw tape letters. The demons define love as consumption. Can I use this person? Can I hurt this person? Can what are they getting for me? As opposed to, and you mentioned this with um, the uh, descent into hell, but the the enemy, as the devil calls God, defines love as the expansion of oneself, the inclusion, the 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 willingness to give, um, as 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 the definition of love. And I think that's that's very much in play. But um, yeah, I think well, it, it's so interesting. I mean, that's a huge theme until we have faces as well. In fact, the epigraph for Till We Have Faces is the opening line of Shakespeare's Sonnet 151, Love is Too Young to Know What Conscience Is. Mm. Um, and that whole book deals with, is this sister's love true? Is it, is she, she thinks that she loves her sister, does she actually, does she actually know what she's doing? So yeah, he, he makes you think deeply and enjoy a story. It's, yes. it's really, he's quite talented, Lewis. Oh, I think, I think that's, that's dead on. Um, he has a similar sort of riff on, uh, he says, you, you can tell some people who, quote, live for others. You can tell who the others are by the hunted look on their face. And it's sort of this misinterpreting what that love is, that I'm giving myself for you, but actually you're smothering and killing and um, so yeah, fan fantastic stuff. We should also say Dr. Um, Scouten was not able to be with us, but he did share his list and his number one uh, item, number one text was were the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Specifically, he cited the horse and his boy and the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. Um, uh, I'm, I won't speak for him. I will just say that the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, the central conceit is of course the sacrifice of Aslan. Uh, to redeem uh, Edmund. So they're sort of along with that theme. Um, all right, Dr. Plowden, your number two, which I will say this, I'll, I'll go ahead and announce you, your initial draft had this at number one. So I know. <laughs> for reconsideration, it falls to two, but still a worthy addition. Absolutely. I, and I will say that my top two choices are books that I have not ever taught. Um, I, well, actually, I did do a Sunday school class on the Harry Potter books, but I, I haven't taught, uh, which is my number one. But um, so I've never taught Lonesome Dove and or Harry Potter like in school. So uh, that's one way that I think I also know that they're really my favorites is because these are 
um, books that I come back to again and again. Just, um, I don't know, a, a lot of times I'll begin my summer by reading either one or the other of them. Lonesome Dove is another one of those very long books. It's 850 plus pages. Um, and I, I believe the sheer narrative force of this book is just one of the things that really grabs me and one of the th reasons I go back to it again and again um, is the, um, the, the expanse of the story, uh, the meaning of the story. If you've not read Lonesome Dove, it's by Larry McMurtry. Um, uh, his creation of characters is just exceptional. I love um, Woodrow Call, Gus McRae, Dietz, Newt, Lorena, Clara. Um, these are characters that I, I think I mentioned in the first um, podcast that Lonesome Dove is a book that after I finish reading it, I'm actually still living in the world of Lonesome Dove for a couple of weeks. And Lonesome Dove is solely responsible for my desire to go to Montana. Um, so I don't think I'll make the trek from the Rio Grande all the way to Montana, all, almost to Canada, but I really would like to go to Montana because of this book. But it is, as you can tell, a very long journey. And um, it's a journey in which two older ex-Texas Rangers, I think, are sort of looking for a newfound purpose in, in life. Um, but it's a book that for all of its excitement and adventure, and there's so much of that, which I love in the book, um, is also a book that's really in a way about loss. And I, I think that especially Call and Gus um, are taking this journey to sort of um, find again, maybe that sort of purpose that they had as Texas Rangers. So, um, Larry McMurtry says that one of the, the main theme of the book is sort of like the search for the father. And there is a younger character named Newt who um, is actually the son of Woodrow Call. And to love this book is to love both Woodrow Call and Gus McRae. I think I could marry Gus McRae, love him. And he, um, but they're two very different men, Woodrow Call, a man with a very, very strong sense of duty and um, so many admirable traits, but not really able to accept imperfection in himself. And he sees his affair with this um, prostitute named Maggie as a, a flaw, and he never really can um, tell Newt that Newt is his son. And I, I cannot forgive Woodrow Call for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just, I, I, I'm like, you have to tell this boy that you are his father. And um, so I guess kind of as a result, uh, um, Newt is another kind of, you know, orphan, finds himself almost in the place of orphan in the world. And he says, no, I ain't kin to nobody in this world. And so that's a sad part of the book for me. I love Gus McRae, who, whose uh, sort of approach to life is more one of, um, uh, it's a bit more laid back and um, he likes his whiskey. He <laughs> likes his books or he likes to have, um, moments of enjoyment. So 
what I especially love, I think, is that um, interplay between Gus and, and Call, and also just the the journey and and the adventure and just the the um, epic nature of it. So it, it's it's hard. It's kind of ineffable in 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 ways that make it you know it's hard to I think it's harder to talk about your very favorite books <laughs> sometimes. But those are things that I do love about it. There's that famous quote that says, you know, anything we can find words for is already dead in our heart. So if you could fully articulate it, that would, that would, you know, belie the actual affection you have for it and the connection you have. Um, all right. We've reached it. Our number ones, our number one. We, if you've made it this far, kudos. We've made it this far. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Sebring, your number one. So, I think it's funny that in a lot of ways, my top five list has been the outlier for a lot of reasons, but my number one is even an outlier by my own standards because it's a nonfiction book. It is the novel. It is a story called The Boys in the Boat, and it is about the 1936 men's eight-man rowing crew from the University of Washington. And that sounds like the most dry subject of all time. If you know nothing about rowing, it probably sounds like the most boring sport imaginable. It's, it's nine guys in a boat. Well, you can make a joke about it. it's eight and a half guys. Short jokes on, on the coxswain's part. In a boat, and they row. Daniel James Brown, the writer of this book, creates such a vivid retelling of this history. Everything from the history of Seattle in the 1930s, which was a city that was on the cusp of greatness uh, to the building of the Reichsportsfeld, which was the German sports stadium that the Nazis constructed for the Olympic Games. And he tells this parallel narrative of these nine young men from the University of Washington coming together as a team, learning to trust each other, learning to become dependent on one another in the boat, versus this almost monstrous individualism of the Nazis. And he focuses on characters like uh, Leni Riefenstahl, who became the documentarian of the Nazi regime, and how she was, in her personal life, and her professional life, she was cutthroat. She cared for nobody but herself. And uh, it focuses on people like her, on uh, the, higher, the higher echelons of the Nazi party, and he creates this storyline of interdependence versus independence of of individual of a monstrous form of individualism versus the wholesomeness of the greatest generation of american values and i can't do this this history justice it's such a vividly written story he actually recently just released another story which is sort of a companion piece called uh, facing the mountain which was about the nisei second generation japanese americans who were interred in uh, internment camps and concentration camps during World War II, and the five ho the uh, the entire army regiment that was created out of them. That despite the fact that their family was still in uh, concentration camps, they went went out and fought in World War II. Um, but I'm getting off topic. The Boys in the Boat, I love it because it is the it is an absolute celebration of the human spirit. It's full of vividly remembered characters. Uh, everybody from the nine boys themselves, their coaches, the shipwright or the boatwright who build their shells is one of the most 
incredible individuals who I've ever had the pleasure of reading about. Uh, the sports writer who wrote about their journey, Royal Braun, worked for the Seattle Intelligencer for 69 years. And he just plucks these characters and these moments out of time and tells them in such a beautiful way that uh, it, it actually created in me a need to read more nonfiction. So, uh, I, again, I feel like I haven't done the best job of explaining why I love these books, but hopefully you can get a sense of why this book means a lot to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, very good. Very good. Uh, Mr. Hain, you're number one. My number one is E.M. Forster's A Passage to India, um, which I first read in, in, I think, in my senior year of high school. And I, I don't know what in the world I understood of it then, but I reread it ooh, many years later. It um, rediscovered it, loved it, wanted to teach it, did teach it. Um, and my students enjoyed it too. Uh, it's set in India in the early 20th century when India was under British rule. And it looks at the, the interactions of several uh, British characters and, and Indian characters, a, a few well-meaning British characters, well, some not so well-meaning, but a few well-meaning British characters and one uh, noble, well-being Indian character in particular. Uh, and it also looks at the, the social and, and cultural uh, uh, differences and the, and the inequality of power that, that uh, work as a wedge to, to split them apart and, and prevent them from being friends. And they try very hard to be friends, some of them. Um, I love this book because it gives me, there are several characters whom I just love. Uh, and Forster is someone I would have liked to have as a godfather, although he didn't believe in God. Um, he, in fact, his beautiful, beautiful essay, What I Believe, begins with the line, I do not believe in belief. Um, but he did believe uh, that, that um, uh, we have to be good to each other. And I think this is a book about people trying against all odds to be good to each other and trying to connect, trying to, uh, to, to, to really be friends. Um, and the world will not allow that. Um, in fact, the, the, the book ends um, with two of the main characters, one Indian, one English, riding on horseback together. And um, one says, uh, uh, why can't we be friends now? One says, eventually when England is no longer ruling India and all these other things are resolved, we, you and I shall be friends. The Englishman says, why can't we be friends now? It's what I want, it's what you want. But the horses didn't want it, the horses they're riding. They swerved apart. The earth didn't want it, sending up rocks through which riders must pass single file. The temples, the tank, the jail, the palace, the birds, the carrion, the guest house that came into view as they issued from the gap and saw Mao beneath, they didn't want it. They said in their hundred voices, no, not yet. And the sky said, no, not there. 
And that's the way the book ends. So it's a, a sad ending um, to a, a beautiful book. Um, uh, there are scenes in this book that I just, uh, I see so vividly. Uh, for example, the when a few of the English are, are sitting having tea with, I think tea with uh, some Indians and one of the English women spots a bird and says, oh, that's such a beautiful bird. Uh, what is it quick? But nothing in India will, will allow itself to be categorized, defined, or even named, and the bird retreats into the shadows before it can be named or explained. Um, another scene that's so beautiful and um, so unforgettable to me is the one where Mrs. Moore, an elderly English woman, um, uh, visits the mosque. Dr. Aziz is in the mosque, um, just reveling in God's beauty when he sees in the dark what he thinks is a column quivering and then another column moving. And then he realizes it's an English woman in the mosque and he shouts out to her, Madam, you have no right. You have no right. Um, and she's terrified. And she says, oh, oh, uh, he says, you should have re removed your shoes. And she said, but I did. I did. Am I, am I not right? Uh, I'm allowed here if I re remove my shoes. And then Dr. Aziz, the young doctor, is deeply embarrassed and says, I'm sorry, I, I, I just assumed that you hadn't. Most women don't take the trouble. And they, she's still a little scared, but he, he um, reaches out to her. And this is the beginning of a, a, a wonderful friendship that's unfortunately doomed. Um, I think part the 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 book is so much more than that. There's a great mystery at the heart of it. This trip that Aziz arranges for uh, Mrs. Moore and her daughter-in-law to the caves, the Marabar caves. And I won't, I won't dare touch what happens in the caves. Um, it's possible that nothing at all happens in the caves, or it's possible that something happens that everyone interprets differently in the dark. Um, but it destroys a few lives, um, I think it's fair to say. Um, and the echo of the caves is something that a few of the characters can never stop hearing. They keep continue to hear the noise, boom. Um, and I think a great question of the book is what really happened in the, in the caves? Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful book for many reasons and um, a very important one to me and probably the main reason I'd like to have Forster as my godfather. <laughs> um, yeah, the, 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 the focus on characters and the connection. I mean, I think in all of this, there is a connection forged with the author for good or for ill. And I think that, you know, that fundamental desire to connect is, is really at the, at the root of a lot of why we, why we read. Um, my number one uh, is uh, Edmund Spencer's epic romance, The Fairy Queen. Um, this is a poem, one of the longest narrative poems in English. Um, it's part allegory, it's part spiritual theology, it's part, part history, it's part politics. It's dedicated to and named after Queen Elizabeth I. It's published in two parts, 1590, 1596. Um, some supplemental cantos. It's, it's formally inventive, so it, it connects either. There were supposed to be 12 books, he only finished six. 
Um, each book has 12 cantos. So it's a mixture of the romance and the epic. Um, each book is dedicated to a different virtue. So the first virtue is holiness. Uh, Red Cross Knight, who is like Luke Skywalker, only much better. Um, book two is about Guyon, the Knight of Temperance, who is, I think, between him and Artigal, who I believe is the hero of book five, the, the Knight of Justice, they basically invent Marvel comic heroes who are powerful and effective, but also flawed and human and weak in a lot of ways. Um, so as a Spider-Man fan, I, I appreciate that that forebearer. Um, my personal favorite is book three, the the Knight of Chastity is a female knight named Britomart, who is the best fighter in the entire, <laughs> every time she meets a knight from another book, she promptly destroys them. Um, it, it's, it's funny, it is, sad at times and tragic. Um, uh, among many things he does, Spencer takes allegory and instead of it flattening or hollowing out the point, he actually breathes life into it and fleshes it out. And so a figure like, just for example, a guy named Mel Becco, who, is, who becomes the embodiment of envy, um, instead of being hollowed out and losing all meaning, you actually feel for him and you see his loss and you you he has such pathos in it that he actually, some people have argued he's actually a, a sort of precursor to Shakespeare's Shylock, a sort of stock stereotypical figure that has done so well and given such life that he actually transcends the genre that he's in and becomes a fully formed human or a fully realized character. Um, Spencer has that. He, uh, this was John Milton's favorite poem. Uh, he, he said that uh, Spencer was a better teacher than uh, you know, philosophers or theologians, um, it's just staggering. Like it's sometimes you're reading it, I, and and I'm like, I can't believe that a human being had this much going on at once in their mind. It's it's just an unbelievable achievement, and it was, and it's only half done. Um, so it's it's to me it it it's in uh, a lot of people will say this. Shea, uh, Spencer is the poet's poet, and he's the guy that Shakespeare aspired to be like, like what Shakespeare is to us, Spencer was to him. Um, and I think that's that's just, it, it will always be kind of in the background. I tried teaching it once, probably won't do that again, <laughs> but that is not a statement on the text, it's a statement on me. Uh, so, Mr. Sutton, number one. Um, so my number one is Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. And in almost any year, I would say, read this book immediately. Um, but I'll, I'll say you can, you can take a year on this one. Um, it is, it is, uh, it is a post-apocalyptic novel, but it is about a virus that kills most of the population of the world. Um, so I, I picked it before. Um, so not a pandemic read, I will say that, but it's still my favorite. Even through this pandemic, it's still my favorite. Um, and it's a weird book that jumps between several different timelines and different characters and there's a lot going on um with that it, it's kind of hard to explain the 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 easiest explanation that i can give is about like it's about complicated people uh before a pandemic and 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 the lives afterwards um a big part of it is about a traveling shakespearean company um after the apocalypse is over, they perform Shakespeare and uh, classical um, 
symphonic pieces. Um, and their whole tagline, because they're kind of like a traveling circus, and their whole tagline is uh, survival is inefficient or is insufficient. Um, and it's it's uh, my 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 list has been kind of one of extremes where it's been like really gross or really epic or really. This is the this is the one where I will say it is by far. Uh, I I think it's the most beautiful book I've ever read. Um, it's also I would say it is the it is the book that taught me the meaning of the word melancholy because it's not it's not it's bleak but it's it's more just I don't know it's it, there's no word for it other than melancholy it's it's not it's not like oppressively sad it's not anything like that it's just it's just it has that undercurrent through the whole thing and it's beautiful and optimistic and but melancholy nonetheless um it's it's just amazing it's also the book i have the hardest time talking about because it's just like it was just an experience for me to to read um it's just i i think it has nothing but great things coming from it she's a, a an excellent writer um it can be a little weird um, I'll just say that one of, one of the quotes I'll, I'll, I'll say, um, maybe it hit me at the right, uh, it was the right book at the right time, but just a quote from it that I thought was like particularly beautiful is, um, she had never in, uh, entirely let go of the notion that if she reached out far enough with her thoughts, she might find someone waiting that if two people were to cast their thoughts outward at the same moment, they might somehow meet in the middle. And that's just like one of the small lines from it. And that's like, it, it's just lines like that where you're like, it's beautiful and you can tell it's, I don't even, ha I can remove, like, I have not told you any of the context of that. And you can tell that there's this like, it's complicated because it's both optimistic and longing and s sad all at the same time. And it, it, it it's just so hard to talk about. Um, but it, it is by far my, my, my favorite book. That's beautiful. I mean, that line and, uh, uh, you know, I think we're all sort of running into the hard part of describing our favorites. And so I think, I think that's good and hopefully a challenge to our listeners as well. So, um, Ms. Richardson, you're number one. So I think like many of you, it was really difficult to narrow it down. Um, but my, my number one book is called Loris. It's by a Russian author called Eugene Vodolazkin. Um, and, and I think Loris includes an element from each of my other top five books. So primarily it's a story about a good man named Arsini. Um, and I think that's actually pretty unique because morally ambiguous characters are a pretty popular trope in modern literature. But this is a book that was published in 2015 about a good person. Um, but Arsini, he, he made a grave mistake early on in his life. And this mistake harms the, the one love of his life. And he spends the rest of his life attempting to atone for his wrongdoing and, more importantly, redeem his loved ones. Um, his mission takes him on an epic journey. And this is reminiscent in many ways of The Count of Monte Cristo. But I think there is an essential difference. So 
in the Count of Monte Cristo, which I love, the the Count's primary mission, right? The the purpose of his quest is vengeance, um, and that's it's really thrilling to read. But in Laris, um, Arsini, the the purpose of his mission is just to help save the soul of his one true love. Um, along his journey, he count, encounters many interesting and peculiar characters both set in the place of the novel, Medieval Russia, and in other times and locations. Um, I really like books that have a philosophical message to them, and this book certainly does. Um, his comrades often engage in conversations about life's biggest questions, and he often ponders the true nature of time and the meaning of self. Um, Loris also features some of my other favorite elements in writing. So wordplay is pretty common. Um, I, I do not read Russian, um, but the translator of the English version put a little note about what the original Russian was like and how she attempted to kind of include some of the unique um, mixture of language styles. So the Russian author had used like old Slavic style mixed with like modern day street language. Um, so I always think that's really fun. Um, it also has some like some elements that are almost magical where the world seems to obey different laws than conventional physics. Um, but ultimately this book took the top spot for me because it's combination of a wonderful moral message, um, countless philosophical ponderings, endearing characters and a unique style and prose. Um, I was somewhat surprised that my favorite book was the one that was published most recently, but I, I'm really delighted that there are still amazing books being published and adding to the catalog of classics that are worth reading. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it, it is cool to see how many, um, we have a pretty wide historical range uh, in, in our list, various lists. So that's, that is very cool to see sort of it bridging those, those uh, historical gaps. Um, thank you. So uh, last but not least, no pressure, Dr. Plowden, your number one. Okay, so I did move um, the Harry Potter books one through seven up to my number one spot. And um, I think in, Madison mentioned that Loris um, contains, you know, many of the elements um, for her, of, of her favorite books and other books that she has mentioned today. And that's also somewhat the case for me with the Harry Potter um, books. And about every other summer, I do start my summer by rereading all seven of those books. Um, I must have something for orphans because <laughs> this is the third book today that I've mentioned that uh, in which the central character is an orphan. But um, in Harry Potter, fortunately, we find that, um, well, what we see is that actually we have parallel orphans, um, Voldemort and um, Harry Potter, but we see in our um, titular character, Harry Potter, that he is able to find um, his place in, in the world. I love fantasy, 
Um, I love the Aragon series. I love other ones that maybe you all have mentioned. <clears throat> so that's one reason I think this is my favorite, my number one choice. Um, I find that the books are very clever, very cleverly written, uh, very clever elements in these books. But it's really the um, ideas and um, I guess the messages from these books that are um, the things that, that make me love them so much. And the fact that I cry every time Dobby dies. I mean, you know, it, it just every time it's unavoidable. So, but um, one of those uh, themes is choices. And I, I love in the Harry Potter books because, and I do think that these themes become more mature as we move throughout the books because the books become more complex. And um, because we begin, of course, with Harry when he's turning 11 and, and then we go through the seven years with him. But um, choices, at, at one time, Dumbledore says something like, you know, it's our choices, Harry, who, uh, determine who we are much more than our abilities. And I, I love that idea because Harry um, actually chooses to be a Gryffindor. And if you've read the Harry Potter books, you're familiar with that. But just the idea that we have the juxtaposition of Harry with Voldemort and um, it's very much um, their choices that have sort of determined the outcome of, of their lives. And um, the other theme or idea that I love is the idea of love. And as, I don't know, cliche, trite, as it might sound, um, this is one of the two things that really grabbed me and made me love these books. There is a room in the Ministry of, of Magic that contains the very greatest, most powerful magic of all. And that is the room that contains love. And uh, the magic, and even though we have muggles and we have magicians, <laughs> the magic in Harry Potter is accessible to everyone because that magic is love. And it's not that you have to have special abilities for that magic. Um, I mean, the wizards and the, you know, are, are different from the muggles, absolutely. Uh, in terms of, I think, imagination um, and their ability to imagine, and they have special gifts, but the most special gift is one that is not something that is exclusive. It, it, it's a gift that is accessible to all. So that message of love and sacrifice, whether it's something we get from a parent or from a mentor, or whether it is love that we feel for our friends, for house elves, <laughs> um, that is, I've, I love it because it is the strongest antidote to isolation. It's the strongest antidote to the soul crushing isolation that Voldemort brings on himself um, because he can't understand love. Um, it is also the um, antidote to Ahab's increasing isolation over the course of Moby Dick. Ishmael is in part saved because of his friendship with Queequeg. I think this relates to things you've already said, such as uh, the willingness to give. Um, Elijah, you mentioned the optimism of connection. I think Madison mentioned and what Tim just mentioned um, about his number one book as well, just that, that connection and community. And um, it, it's the 
thing that Piccola doesn't have. And um, that's part of the reason for descent into madness. So, um, but finally, it's imagination because, I mean, for every um, child, <laughs> for every teenager, whoever, uh, for every adult <laughs> who um, has been called a daydreamer or a right brain thinker or <laughs> might at times be accused of spaciness, these books vindicate us, okay? <laughs> because these books celebrate imagination. Um, the first sentence is something about the Dursleys and not liking anything abnormal. They like for everything to be the same. Thank you very much. Um, so these books are um, show the absolute beauty, power, value, validity of imagination and of stories. And what is the use of stories that are not true? The use of stories that are not true is, is that they give us the greatest truths of all. And those truths often come for the ones who can imagine and the ones who do imagine. And um, Harry asked Dumbledore at the end, well, is this all happening in my head? You know, this is not real. And Dumbledore says, um, well, of course it's all happening in, inside your head, but why on earth should that mean it's not real? Because it is. And I, that's, I guess, my final reason for loving um, those books. They are an unabashed um, celebration of the imagination and of stories. Well, I, I, I can't really add much to that other than uh, I'm so thankful for you all and for the community of readers, because that really, you know, a book isn't really, you know, uh, there's nothing like sharing a book that you love with other people. So I, I, I thanks to all of you for letting us do that. Um, thanks to you all for uh, sharing your loves and uh, also, you know, putting yourself out there. Um, and uh, I hope that you all have a great rest of your evening. And, and uh, I hope that if you do listen to this, that you do get some ideas for, for uh, books to read, because I certainly have from this list. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, Elisha. Thank you. Thanks, guys. We hope that you enjoyed our top five lists. Special thanks to all of our participants, uh, Mr. Sebring, Mr. Hain, Mr. Sutton, Ms. Richardson, Dr. Plowden, and indirectly Dr. Scouten as well. Um, we hope that uh, these lists make you think a little bit, make you think about perhaps what texts would be on your list. Um, and if nothing else, perhaps uh, gives you some recommendations for, for some uh, books you might check out in the future. If you have any comments, any questions, uh, please feel free to uh, reach out to us. You can reach us at E-S-I-R-C-Y at heathwood.org. Again, that's E-Circy at heathwood.org. Um, and we definitely appreciate your uh, listening and uh, any contributions or questions that you might want to add. Thank you. <laughs>